Welcome to Ask the Experts. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, and this is the interview show where we get to chat with some of the leading thinkers in anesthesiology about a wide range of important topics from airway management to ultrasound guided regional anesthesia. Now, we have a couple of quick notes before we get to this episode's guest. First, as I've mentioned, we created a listener survey, which we are hoping will help us get to know you, our listeners, better and help us build a better show for you. There's a link to the survey in the episode description. It only takes about three to five minutes to fill out, which we would really appreciate. And that survey will particularly come in handy for the team in the future, because the other important announcement I have to share with you is that I'm leaving Anesthesiology News. So going forward, I won't be the host or the producer for this series or on the case or the etherist. I'm sorry for the sudden notice. It is all good news though. It is just time for me to move on to new endeavors, and I am so excited to see how James Pruden and the rest of the Anesthesiology News Presents team takes this show in a new direction. I have so enjoyed my time working on these podcast series and making what I hope were entertaining and informative shows for all of you. There is no doubt that I will miss getting to continue this work. Now, I am not sure exactly how the series will change after I'm gone, but I know that the team and the new hosts and producers will do an incredible job. In the meantime, there will definitely be an interim period where the team isn't publishing new episodes, so stay tuned to this channel for updates from the new host sometime in the near future. And I will be looking forward, along with all of you, to hear what the show sounds like when it comes back. Now, without further ado, I am happy to introduce our guest for this episode of Ask the Experts, Dr. Rita Agrawal. Dr. Agrawal is a clinical professor of anesthesiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is also the past president for the Society of Pediatric Pain Medicine. She has also been a major proponent for legislation to regulate the operator anesthesia model in pediatric dental cases in her state of California, an effort that started in 2015 and continues to this day. And you can find her on Twitter at Rita Agrawal 6. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Agarwal. Anesthesiologynews.com is the website for the most widely read publication for the specialty, now in its 48th year of publication. Get access to extensive news coverage of major scientific meetings, feature articles, in-depth clinical reviews written by thought leaders, and all of the Anesthesiology News multimedia audio and video content, such as the Airway On Demand video series. To get access to all of this content and the complete Anesthesiology News archives, visit anesthesiologynews.com. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Agarwal, for joining us on Ask the Experts. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, as you know, this is an area I'm really passionate about and really hope that eventually can really make a difference to improve patient care. Great. And, you know, before we get into some questions, I always like to kind of get to know 
our experts who come on the show a little bit better. So I was uh, hoping you could tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, your current role and, and a little bit about your, your current professional track right now. Oh, it's been such a, it's, uh, yeah. So I'm a pediatric <laughs> anesthesiologist. Um, I trained, I did most of my training in Houston, Texas at, at Baylor College of Medicine. My first job, in fact, was there okay. at Texas Children's. And then I moved to Colorado where I worked for 20 years, 20 plus years. I was there in charge of pediatric anesthesia education for fellows and residents and anyone else who was coming to the department. And I was also the fellowship director, the pediatric anesthesiology fellowship director. Um, seven years ago, I moved out to Stanford for, you know, a variety of reasons. Okay. Um, and as a result of that, I sort of got involved in this area that I really had not had any knowledge about, not had any real experience with in the past. And that was the area of dental anesthesia, particularly um, in physician or in dentist offices. And part of it was really a, a um, alignment of various things. And that was when I had moved to Stanford. So I'm in California. Two was I had just been elected to be the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on anesthesiology and pain medicine and happened to be in California. Um, And so I was initially, um, and then I had also just joined the California Society of Anesthesiology as part of their communications committee and um, had, you know, had some interest and had some written some things and been, had made myself, I guess, known within that group. And so I think, though, primarily as my role as the AAP, um, initially the chair, that was really where um, I sort of got involved with this. And then as a result of being part of the California Society of Anesthesiology, I've stayed involved with it because it was something both groups took on. Um, So that's a little bit of my background. My primary interest has always been education kind of broadly and I see this in some, in many ways as an expansion of that, rather than focusing on what a resident learns or what a fellow learns, it's more about what the public learns and what other practitioners and clinicians learn. So I really see that as an expansion of that role. And it, it's been at quite, and I'm, I'm so thrilled that you call me an expert because I truly don't feel like an expert in this field. I feel like I'm, there's just, the learning curve is huge. And trying Absolutely. to figure out what's going on. You definitely are. And and if you didn't feel like it before now, you can say for sure. Uh, you've been on Ask the Expert, so it's official. <laughs> um, I, I definitely want to get into the details of, of what you've been working on and, and a lot of what you were alluding to. But I, I want to just stop first because I always ask all of our guests that come on the show, I'm always so interested in how people got into anesthesia when, when you first knew that you wanted to be an anesthesiologist. So I want to ask you that question before we get into the, the details. So uh, did, do you know when you first realized you wanted to go into oh, anesthesia? Yeah. So interestingly, I started medical school. I went to medical school. I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor probably from about age 10 on. And I knew that I was going to be a neurologist. I went to medical school knowing that that's what I was going to do. And then I did my neurology rotation. And I didn't love it the way I thought I would. Partly not because, I mean, the people were amazing. The science was amazing. Um, It was so interesting. But I was stunned at how sad. I mean, it just, 
the patients were so sad. I mean, they mm-hmm. all had these horrible diseases that were either at the time, especially when I was in medical school, incurable and life-changing. And so I just didn't think I could cope with that. And I, I spent a little bit of time not really sure what I actually wanted to do. I went to medical school at Baylor, which is a very surgery or at least at that time, was very much a surgery-heavy school. And so I thought maybe I would do surgery. And um, I started off, you know, I I matched into a surgery residency. And um, as I was finishing medical school, one of the – I had, like, one elective left, and someone said, oh, you should do anesthesia for your elective. It's a great elective. The last one. You get to do a lot (laughs) of stuff. You get to be in the OR, and you get to do a lot of procedures and see a lot of cool things. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds cool. And so that's what I did. And during that entire month, I'm like, wow, I really, really like this. And during my entire first few months of my surgery internship, I kept thinking, gosh, I really liked anesthesia and I just don't have the passion for surgery that I thought I would. Um, I don't, I'm not, this just is, it's it's not what I want to do, I don't think, with the rest of my life. And so I talked to a few people in anesthesia, kind of just feeling that out, like, mm-hmm. is this, you know, what do you think? And everyone was so supportive and so encouraging. And so I was lucky enough to be able to get a position within the anesthesiology department at the same at, at Baylor as well. And so, yeah, okay. that's, that's, that's my story. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. We, we hear a lot, a lot. There's a lot of people that kind of like, it was one of the last things they decided to give a try in med school. It's a great story. The anesthesiology news e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right to your inbox. Go to anesthesiologynews.com slash enews to sign up today. We'll go ahead and get into some of the details. So we uh, kind of, we break things up into sections of questions. So the first round of questions is getting to the heart of the matter. Um, and so you were alluding to this uh, uh, in your uh, introduction that you, uh, seven years ago you moved to California and you were getting involved in the California anesthesiology, um, you know, uh, society and programs and 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 kind of learning the ropes, I guess. Uh, and it was right around that time, actually, that this this um, you know sort of terrible event happened where this young boy Caleb uh, died while under general anesthesia. So. Uh, and and that kind of led to why we're having you on the show to talk about this as Caleb's Law. So I wonder if could you first give us a little bit of background about the case, uh, and then explain what Caleb's Law is all about. Yeah, so Caleb was a little um, five or six year old little boy who was perfectly healthy, lived in uh, the Bay Area. He had this extra tooth that needed to be removed and was referred to an oral surgeon, very highly respected oral surgeon in the area. The oral surgeon told him that they he would need anesthesia or told his family he would need anesthesia for the procedure. And so the family was understandably concerned and they talked to um, Caleb's aunt, Dr. Annie Kaplan, who at the time was a surgery resident. She assumed like 
anyone else in medicine and particularly in surgery would assume that all of the same rules and laws that apply in medicine would be the same in dentistry. I mean, I don't think anyone would actually ever question that that would be different, right? So she assumed, assuming the predominant model in medicine, you know, assured the family that, oh, this would be safe. There'd be someone there to monitor him. Um, in fact, the dentist oral surgeon said there would be someone there who would monitor him the entire time. So they went in to have this procedure done and Caleb received um, a, a mass conduction. He had an IV, he received propofol, fentanyl, nitrous oxide, ketamine, and midazolam. And naturally enough, given the amount and the number of doses in this young child, he stopped breathing. Once he stopped breathing, it appeared from all the medical records that were available that nobody really seemed to know what to do. There was an attempt made by the oral surgeon to intubate him that was unsuccessful and resulted in his breaking several of Caleb's teeth. Um, at some point, and it appears that it was a good 20 minutes after this incident occurred, um, 911 was called and they arrived, the EMTs arrived, there was nobody doing CPR, there was nobody doing mag bag mask ventilation, and there had been no attempt to reverse any of the medications. He certainly received a couple that could have been reversible with midazolam and, um, and opioids if they had the appropriate um, reversal agents there. So the EMTs um, took over, were able to resuscitate him, took him to Oakland Children's Hospital, where he later expired several days later. Okay. Caleb's family was devastated, as you can only imagine. I mean, mm -hmm. who wouldn't be? Anyone would be devastated by this. Um, and they really tried to understand what had happened and how to perhaps prevent something like this from happening in the future. And it started really, and Annie Kaplan is really kind of the hero in all of this. Um, she at that point had actually taken, I think, a leave of absence from her residency. She had taken a maternity leave um, and then this happened and then she kind of extended it. Um, but she um, started asking all the questions that other people would ask, well, how often does this happen? How, you know, who does it happen to? Um, where are the records for all of these? And none of it was available. I mean, there's just not anything out there on um, e even the basic numbers um, and even the basic, you know, the basic information that you would want to have. And so going through all of this and realizing how, you know, and you compare that to medicine where we're so strictly and highly regulated everything we do i mean we have jaco and we have you know hospital administrations and we have you know right, everybody right. looking over our shoulder and making sure we document every single thing it just is not that way in dentistry at all there's just nothing out there even the california board of dentistry there just is no information and it took a long time because apparently there are records somewhere. They're just not readily accessible. Okay. So it took a while. She was finally able to get some information on all of this and um, went to her local um, senator. I think it was the state senator at the time and said, you know, we can't this people don't know what's happening. People don't realize what's happening and we need to do something to change it. And so that led to the first Caleb's law, which really basically just said 
that the, the California Board of Dentistry needs to do a study on pediatric anesthesia in the state of California and come up with some recommendations, um, which they did. And basically, there was a little bit in there about strengthening some of the monitoring and sedation requirements, but most of it was around they needed to keep better records, they needed to create a database, they needed to... Um, you know, further study what was going on and how to make it safer. And this happened actually before I, I met the team and Dr. Kaplan and got involved with the CSA. Okay. Um, so okay. that first law was passed then. So then uh, the attempt was made to basically pass the second law, which was really codifying all of the things that had been recommended by the California Board of Dentistry to improve sedation in children, particularly younger children. And and just to make sure we have the timeline right, so Caleb's law went into effect, the first law you were talking about went into effect in 2017. And I just want to say for everyone listening, we do, we have, and Anesthesiology News has been covering this um, from when it first came out and, and over the years as, as things have been updating. And um, and uh, Dr. Agarwal, you've been uh, a source for us on, on a, a few of those articles that we've written, kind of keeping up with how things are going. So we'll have links to all of that uh, with the episode so people can go and read up on on more detail, uh, read up in more detail on on the history of this if they're curious. Um, but it's nice to be able to hear directly from you about, you know, how it's been going and some of the background on that. And, um, and so, yeah, so uh, leaving off with Caleb's Law was passed, it was, um, you know, th- th- that sort of sparked some change, it sounds like. So then that eventually led to this desire to um, make all of those recommendations law as well. So where, what is the status of Caleb's Law Part 2? So the issue is that, one, state laws are different for sedation and anesthesia in dentistry in every single state. In every single state, they have different requirements and different um, standards that are followed. So that's one issue because it's very difficult to apply things across state lines. And some are much, much laxer than California and some are stricter, but not many. I think Texas may have actually gotten a little bit stricter lately, but they, that's because they had a few catastrophes. Okay. Um, so two, dentistry and particularly oral surgeons practice this unique model that they call They've actually steered, they've steered away because we called it out the single operator model. They now call it the surgeon operator model or the surgeon anesthetist model or the, you know, there's different names for it. But basically, it is a model whereby the surgeon or the dentist is does really both the anesthesia and the procedure, whether it's removing oral um, m- removing wisdom teeth or, you know, working on dental cleanings and cavities in a kid who has multiple areas that need to be cleaned or something else. So l- I just want to repeat that because there is nowhere else in medicine where this occurs in the same manner, right? Where you have a surgeon or a proceduralist or whoever the main person is doing both the procedure and providing the anesthesia, except for very short things. So for example, I could be the anesthesiologist and I can still put in an A-line or a central line. um, And I may not have anyone else around me to help except to have nurses and and that's a whole nother issue, right? I mean, there's always somebody there. I'm never there by myself with undereducated, undertrained people. So in the dentistry model or in the oral surgery model, you have the dentist 
who does the procedure. They're also supervising and providing the anesthesia. And how they get around this is they say, well, we have this dental assistant whose job it is to watch the monitors. Okay, that sounds great, right? Well, so there's somebody there, which is what Caleb's family thought too. There's somebody there watching the monitors. Yeah, but most dental assistants or many dental assistants have no more than a high school education. And, okay. and this is the really key and important part here is that, I mean, we love dental assistants, right? I love going to my dentist. They're, I mean, I love my dental assistants. I love my dental hygienist. They're always there helping out. This is not the hygienist. This is the person who hands the instruments and does the suctioning for the dentist. They are not required in most states and most places to have more than a high school education. There are, um, there's a dental anesthesia um, certification examination, which is a national exam that is for dental assistants to get certified in quote-unquote anesthesia, right? It is basically, um, I, I think it's, and I, I, I should, I'm sorry, these numbers were always so much at the tip of my finger and I can't remember them now, but it's like 30 hours okay. of online education plus an exam. I actually think it's less than that. It, okay. And it's, it's changed, it used to be 36, but I think it's gone down to 30 hours um, with an online examination. And that's so California have, or is that? That's everywhere? No, no. This is nationally. California okay. is better than okay. which is one of the reasons why our oral surgeons and dentists push so hard to do more. So these people um, are again are wonderful dental assistants who have are not required to have more than a high school education. Some and, and that's not to say, I mean, many of them may, but they're not required to. Um, can take this exam after six months on in six months practice. And then, you know, these number of hours of online education, and then they take an exam and they're certified to be a dental, um, a dental, I don't remember what they call it, a dental anesthesia assistant. That's what they're called. Okay. Um, California is better because they have a course that's 100 hours, and some of that is in person, including like hands-on kinds of stuff, and then a state, a state exam. Um, so they have a little bit more background and a little bit more education, and then they're considered a dental sedation assistant. So that is the underlying basic problem that we're dealing with. It's not about, there's no, it's truly about patient safety. I mean, if in medicine we have moved towards not having, you know, a, a, a proceduralist do a procedure and provide an anesthetic, by themselves. Why is it safe to do it in a dental office? Okay. And so Caleb's law really attempted to change that and say, you guys need to follow the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Pediatric Dentistry sedation guidelines. It has a much longer title. It's like monitoring, preparation, monitoring, and sedation guidelines before, during, and after um, okay. in children. It's got a very right. long title. <laughs> okay. um, that was and that that set had come out in 2000. I think the latest was 2016. And what was so fascinating to me is that we all we all the majority of medical people I think interpreted the requirements in one way, and a lot of the people from dentistry interpreted it a different way to suit what they were doing and how they were doing it. Okay. And it was. It was intense and amazing. And to, to, we actually had the author 
um, of the guidelines. The person who wrote the guidelines way back in 1986 when they first came out and has written every update since, including the most recent update, um, sitting in a room with senators being told that he was misinterpreting his own guidelines, that he wow. was misinterpreting them, that, that because well, as one person, as one of the senators or assembly people put it, well, we get told something by one group of people and we get told something by a different group of people. And well, we don't know. We're, we're not physicians. And they're talking to the author of the guidelines who is saying moderate, deep and, and uh, deep sedation and general anesthesia require two qualified trained people in the room, one to do the surgery and one to monitor the anesthesia. That person does not have to be an anesthesiologist. No one has said that. They need to be someone who was qualified and trained. It could be another dentist who has um, credentialing in anesthesia because dentistry, the, the board of dentistry gives their own anesthesia credentials. It could be in the state of California because CRNAs have independent practice. It could be a CRNA. It could be another physician who has, again, anesthesia credentialing who is there, but it needs to be another person. It could even be a nurse who's credentialed in sedation. So that's what happened to Caleb's Law Part 2. There no. was a huge amount of pushback, a huge amount of pushback, despite the fact that this was just trying to codify the recommendations from the Board of Dentistry. And the primary, as you can imagine, the primary people pushing back against it were the California Association of Oral, Oral Maxillofacial Surgery Surgeons, the, um, the, um, the AAOMS, the, the, the American Association of Oral Maxillosurgeons, the um, California Board of Dentists, not the California Board, I'm sorry, the, um, the ADA, the American Dentistry Association, the California Dentistry Association, um, we were somewhat surprised that our, um, and there was some hesitation on the part of the California uh, Pediatric Dentistry Association. They didn't actually support the law until pretty much it was too late. There was some hesitation on the part of some of our CRNA colleagues, which was unfortunate because this was really would have would have helped would have been beneficial. It wouldn't have hurt them in any way. And it probably could have been beneficial because it would have offered another place for people to practice. But I think there was just some hesitation on their part. Um, and so it was, you know, the, the thing that we really came to learn was how incredibly powerful the ADA and the AAOMS are. Um, because they created enough doubt and uh, created enough concern in the minds of lawmakers that they didn't want to pass. They did pass another law, which was okay, except that it didn't require that additional second person. Um, it strengthened some of the requirements for sedation, including requiring people who are taking care of children under seven to be PAL certified and that there be at least two PAL certified people in the room um, okay. when a child was being sedated. It definitely, it, it sort of more in a mushy fashion asked for better data collection and data keeping and, and information gathering. Okay. The um, AAOMS then created this thing that they modeled on the, um, on the anesthesia information, um, uh, you know, on our um, QI, the big QI project, the AIMS project that we have through anesthesiology. Um, and, but it's, 
I don't, I mean, I can't get into it because I'm not a dentist, so I can't, yeah. I can't see what it is. It's very voluntary. Okay. Um, it's very voluntary. Okay. <laughs> That's a big starting issue, and there's no real guarantee. I mean, I don't know that there are dentists that have the kinds of skills and kinds of interests that many in anesthesiology did who set up some of these these big um, adverse event databases to try and really gather data and improve patient care and patient, um, patient um, outcome. So that's where we are. We have this law. Now, this law was supposed to go into effect this year to 2022. The problem is now, because so what happened? So Caleb's law didn't pass. The second part didn't pass. So the AAP immediately went back and said, well, they are referencing these AAP, AAPD sedation guidelines, and they are misinterpreting them. And the way they've twisted the words and twisted the words to the lawmakers, it's difficult to convince them that, that they're wrong. So let's just go back and change the guidelines. And so, I mean, for the AAP, everything moves at snail's pace, but oh my God, they got this through really fast. So 2019, a new set of guidelines came out that very clearly spells out that for deep sedation or general anesthesia, there has to be two qualified people in the room. One is the surgeon. One can be the surgeon. It doesn't have to be the surgeon, but one is the surgeon or the proceduralist performing the procedure, but another person has to be there who can who has the skills to help rescue a child if they they get into trouble. And so now this law that they passed um, no no longer follows the AAP guidelines. And so there's just a lot of discussion around how to implement the new aspects of the law. And this is, I think, what's great to be able to have you on the show to talk about this because you are, you know, you're an anesthesiologist by training, by trade, by by passion, and uh, here you are stepping completely outside of the medical world and into policy making. And I know, you know, we don't want to get, we don't want to stay too much in the weeds with everything, as you said. Zooming out would probably be more beneficial for um, our listeners who aren't in California, especially. Um, but you know, it's, it, it does seem like the 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 actions, the sort of the advocacy for making these changes in the law, it, it's led to uh, an updated guideline um, there in 2019. And then also it seemed, and I don't know, and this was one more question I had for you about kind of staying in the weeds is that the California Dental Association recently changed the way that they do permitting for um, delivering anesthesia. That was part of that previous law that passed, the law that okay. passed instead of previous law. And so does that, I, the question I had for you about that is, you know, because obviously it's written sort of a legalese type of, you know, bureaucratic way. Uh, did did that seem like a positive change from, from where you were looking at it? Yeah, it did. And it was, I think, one of the things we fought for. It's still not as much as we would want. I mean, okay. there's no question. But it really strengthened and increased the amount of training that you had to have sedating and caring for children, specifically, as as as, as separated from just general sedation. And so, I mean, I think that's a positive thing. I think that is definitely a positive thing. The other things that have happened specifically in California, but also nationally, and I know you had Peggy Seidman on the show, and she's part of, I think, that trend that has developed as a result of what happened here, 
is um, that there are more people, more anesthesiologists, more dentist anesthesiologists, and we can talk about them if you like. Um, and I think so, in some places, CRNAs offering anesthesia services to patients undergoing dental care. One of the things that we didn't talk about is, you know, people talk about access to care, but, but really, um, you know, part of that, and, and also cost. Well, for a lot of oral surgeons and dentists who are providing their own anesthesia, the anesthesia and sedation costs were often more than the dental work that they were doing. And so oh, there's okay. a huge cost incentive there too. Now, the access to care, and the reason I don't argue it is because if you don't have people out there who are willing to care for your, for your, for your patients, then that is a problem. And um, the one other thing I just want to mention really quickly is since one of the things that was both in Caleb's law and is in the current law and is part of the California Board of, of Dentistry's requ requirements is improved data uh, management, data keeping. Right. We, um, w and by we, it was a small group of us that had worked together. So it included myself, Dr. Jimmy Tom, James Tom, who is a dentist anesthesiologist, one of the pediatric dentists from Loma Linda Medical School, um, and Dr. Kaplan and myself went to one of the California Board of Dentistry annual meetings to present a data tool that has been used very successfully and very effectively um, in terms of, of you know, in terms of patient safety outcomes that was developed in Dartmouth um, by the Pediatric Sedation Research, Research sorry, consortium, which is part of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. So this is a completely, you know, non-involved, not objective group. It has nothing to do with California. There's no, you know, it's not specifically right. anesthesiologists. The pediatric sedation group, you know, has many, many physicians from all different specialties and some dentists who are part of that group. They collect data on every single sedation that they do. It's a very quick, simple, easy tool that just you click some boxes. They had developed a mock-up that, that we could use. We presented it and, you know, basically it was pushed aside in favor of the, um, the, um, the dental incident reporting, um, anesthesia incident reporting tool, which is voluntary. And that's all I know because I can't see it. Yeah. It's a different system than what you're used to as an anesthesiologist, right? Um, so, you know, and like, it's great to hear all this. I think one question that a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, especially those who aren't in California or in one of these states that's that's maybe trying to make changes is, you know, what, what can an anesthesiologist do to maybe help out in this situation? Um, you know, what, what kind of, how can someone get involved to, to either provide some of that care that, that needs to be provided or maybe help to change local dentist offices to ensure that they're providing this care? So the first thing is to find out what your state requirements are, what your state laws are, who, who can get permitted to give anesthesia um, but through the, the state board of dentistry within that state. The first thing is just to know what your local, um, you know, your local practice environment is. The second thing is if you found, find it outrageous, if you, if you understand, you know, first of all, they use a lot of different terminology. They use a, diff a lot of different words. They throw things at you. So when they kept talking to me about dental assistance and dental anesthesia assistance, I guess in my own brain, I sort of thought these were people who had at least 
maybe not full nurse, you know, training that a nurse would have, but something equivalent, something closer to what they have than what they actually do, right? So understanding those, I think, nuances is really important. Um, if you're a person who has time and energy and interest, the best place to get involved is with your state societies, whether it's your state medical society or your state anesthesiology society. Um, again, depending on the priorities for your state anesthesiology society, they may or may not, this may or may not be something that they're interested in. Both the two states that I have lived in most recently, Colorado and California, this has been something that they've been interested in. I think our Colorado State Society, along with our pediatric dentists, were really um, influential in getting medical insurance to cover the cost of anesthesia for a child who needed to get an, a general anesthetic for their dental work. And um, that that was huge. That was a huge thing because it really cut down on the number of kids who would be held down. Um, because it, what are the alternatives to sedation, right? It's papoosed on a papoose board, held down, and having someone force your mouth open and do whatever you need to do. And that's pretty traumatic. Nobody wants to go there. No. Um, the other thing is to work within. So, and if advocacy and getting involved is not either your interest or your passion, or you don't have time, you may have interest, but I mean, there are so many things I have interest in, but not enough time, sure. um, is not something you have the time or the interest to do, then you could definitely consider, you know, looking within your group um, to see if there are things that you can provide to help increase the number of patients that that maybe would would be um, eligible to get an anesthetic within your institution, one of my colleagues, um, as I said, he he was in full time practice, but he set aside like a day. I think it's every other week is how he started out. That he just set aside. He got a little clinic space, and he was able to start providing anesthesia for dental care. So okay. a lot, you know, obviously that's going to depend on the type of practice you have, on the type of situation that you have, um, you know, where you are and all those kinds of things. But if you, but for people who are interested, that would be a way to go. And then the third thing is, you know, as I said, there's an increasing number of groups that really specialize in dental anesthesia. And so for some people that may be a really nice, uh, you know, a really nice, um, um, kind of group to work with. And so mm -hmm. looking into, you know, looking into one of those groups is also, and they're all over. It's not just, you know, there's the, the one that Dr. Seidman works with, I think started in Ohio, but has spread. There's another one out of Florida um, that, that start again, started in Florida, but has spread and is now providing anesthesia kind of still mostly in the South. Um, there's a group in Oregon that just does dental anesthesia. There are groups kind of all over. Yeah. So looking into those and maybe figuring out how to support those people, if that's appropriate, um, is, is a way to go. Yeah. And I mean, I think like the, 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 to sum it all up, there's opportunity and there's need and, and, you know, it's, it's very likely that there is a, um, a state level or some, even something local that, uh, you can get involved in if, if this is something you're interested in and, and you want to help out in your local community, obviously everything that you've been working on in California is, uh, it's, it's great to make that progress. It is uh, specific to your state, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you know, some, right, some of those changes right. will have to spill over, Obviously. um, but yeah, no, but it's... a lot of the changes do spill over. And yeah. that's the thing is California is a big enough state that 
we create, <laughs> we create, a, well, what is, I mean, we, we create interest because of mm -hmm. how, you know, of how big the state is. And yeah. um, so, and because of the fact that I think this was in California, I mean, the stuff around Caleb's law was featured on national TV, national news at the time that this was all going on. And so there was definitely a lot of interest that was generated as a result. We're sort of in a holding pattern. And, you know, the whole thing with COVID has really, you know, we were, we were actually gearing up to figure out kind of what our next steps were going to be. And then COVID hit. And so everyone's sort of fallen off the, um, and then the, the, you know, there were some other attempts at some other things that have also been sort of nipped in the bud. And this was more things that we didn't think were so um, helpful or useful. Okay. Um, you know, and again, I mean, you're talking to a group of very highly educated people, right? I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I love my oral surgeons. They're very highly educated, highly well-trained people who have truly, truly believe and have been taught that their model is safe. And so we're coming in telling them, no, what you're doing is not safe. And yet they say, look, I've done thousands of these cases or hundreds of these cases, and I've not had a problem. And it's like, yeah, but that's kind of how anesthesia was initially. I mean, you know, right. you do 100 anesthetics before you have a bad outcome. And we all have to move and progress. And so, you know, yeah. So the, anyway, those are the things that people can do is, is either more at the state level um, look at look at ways to to try and improve what's happening within their own communities or look within their own practice environment or consider, you know, creating a new practice opportunity to do this. Yeah. And then just also kind of follow follow the story with Caleb's Law Part 2 or what comes next for, for you guys and the efforts in California. Well, that's great. Now, thank you so much uh, for being on the show and thank you so much for the, the wealth of information that you were able to, to pass on to us. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we will definitely stay tuned to, to the progress and, and everything that you're working on in the future. Well, and I hope more people um, take this on and start looking at it within their own states. I know that there are a lot of people who are doing it at a local level. And um, that's where that's oftentimes where change starts. So that's where we go. Yeah. Great. Thank well, you yeah. so much again for asking me. I hope this is useful and helpful. Thank you so much to Dr. Agarwal for being our guest here on Ask the Experts. And thank you to all of you for joining us and for joining me for my final episode as the host of the Anesthesiology News Presents channel. Please remember to take that listener survey as it will come in handy for the new producer of the show in the near future. And while you wait for the series to return, please check out our other shows on this channel, The Etherist and On The Case. And if you are interested in keeping up with me as I move on to new projects, you can find me on Twitter at MikeEditsPain. And as always, thank you for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwong Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. 
Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Group.